Uh, the reading of the scriptures this morning is from Romans chapter 10, uh, reading verses 1 to 4, and I invite your reverent hearing of God's uh, word here in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you know, uh, Grace Bible Church, we are uh, committed to the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God, uh, namely that God must uh, initiate uh, in divine calling uh, the gathering of his people, and only he can uh, save, so he gathers his elect by his sovereign power. Uh, but having said that, uh, he gives to the church uh, the commission to take that message to all the world. Uh, we know that in uh, the two words of the Great Commission, uh, I would remind you, uh, as someone reminded me, it's not the Great Suggestion, it's the Great Commission, the church, to carry the message uh, to the four corners of the world. And uh, even though we are committed to the sovereignty of God, we also embrace that God uses His message and his messengers to bring men and women to himself. Uh, and uh, this morning, uh, Paul reminds us that we are his messengers. He's also going to remind us about the divine message uh, that we're to carry to the world. Uh, in our passage this morning, Israel's rejection is uh, based upon their trust in their own righteousness and not the righteousness of the divine provision. And Paul is going to remind all of us, and certainly his countrymen, uh, that that is their uh, incredible danger. Uh, the previous uh, chapter well established the sovereignty of God and salvation. Uh, we know that the initiative is uh, entirely God's. Uh, and when he acts to save, he saves all those whom he wills to save. Uh, I mean, look very quickly, uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 21. Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? He's the potter where the clay. God is sovereign. Uh, but it is also just as true that God uses means. And in that sense, he calls upon us to carry his message. Uh, I might underscore that because it's not uh, my message or the message of Grace Bible Church. It's the divine message. We're to carry that to the world. Uh, and this chapter will establish that truth as well. Uh, the divine pr prerogative to save is entirely God's. But he also tells us how he does this in the message of Scripture and by the use of divine agents. And Paul is a divine agent. You and I, as Christians, are divine agents uh, to carry that message to the world. 
uh, and to use, I might add, his message. Let's begin with the agents. Uh, verses 1 and 2, God uses men to prosecute his message. Now I know you're saying, well, Phil, that's kind of a simple message. Uh, but it is a powerful reminder because sometimes we forget that. Uh, he uses messengers. Hippopotamus have big mouths. He could have used them, but he doesn't. He uses men and women. He could have used giraffes because they can see a long way off. But he doesn't use giraffes. He uses men and women and boys and girls. I don't mean to be silly or pedantic. But again, uh, sometimes we forget that. Uh, I know that because sometimes I forget it. God puts me in a relationship with someone uh, and perhaps I just blow by it, pay it no attention, uh, give it no thoughtful prayer or consideration. Maybe it's a serviceman who comes to my house to do some work. Uh, they don't come by chance, do they? They come because of divine providence. Now, they're not aware of that, but I am. And I'm also aware that I am there. And so I should pray. I should pray that God would naturally open a window for me to share the faith. Uh, our immediate context, as you know, beginning with Romans chapter 9, is God is dealing with Israel, Paul's countrymen. His immediate agent in the way that he works among men and among the remnant among Israel is the Apostle Paul. And Paul tells us that his desire and good pleasure, coupled with his prayers, is for the salvation of his countrymen. That's what he desires. It's a powerful desire that Paul has. I mean, it was the beat of his heart. Uh, he had compassion because he prayed to that end. And these are essential elements of advancing the divine message. God uses means. One of those means is prayer. So be prayerful when you encounter men and women, wherever it might be. Maybe the time is not right. Who knows? I don't uh, engage in uh, that. I simply are reminded that we pray that God would make it natural. And there's nothing more natural than men and women who know the Savior and who encounter men and women who do not know the Savior to tell them about the majesty of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Uh, because absent that, men and women, boys and girls, are courting, are courting everlasting ruin from which there is no return, from which there is no recovery. All through the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And there is no return. I'm not unmindful that uh, uh, the Catholic Church has a mediating view. They hold a purgatory. And we can pray men and women and boys and girls out of purgatory, but we don't because we don't believe in purgatory. It is an improper use of Scripture and theology, but it's their belief nonetheless. Great occasion to share the faith with men and women and boys and girls of that persuasion. 
because it is indeed the terrifying reality that once someone closes their eyes in death, there is no return from their eternal destiny. That's why Paul has a great desire to share the gospel with his countrymen. That's why he prays. Uh, it's our reminder that simply the clarity of Scripture, is it not? John 3.16, God so loved the world. You and I believe that the concept of world is Jew and Gentile. And we should share the love of God. Who he gathers is entirely his divine prerogative. But we know our prerogative is to share the gospel. Uh, Another important text of this end, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the context is all men without distinction. It's not all men without exception because God is never frustrated. He's the sovereign Lord of history. And in the interim time between the departure of our Savior and His coming again, He's gathering His own. I don't know who those are. And so we should prosecute the call of the gospel and uh, sharing the gospel to all men without exception with the full knowledge that he is calling all men and women without distinction. On the divine side, God's call is a particular call. Our call is a general call to all. His is particular. How do I know this? Look at Romans chapter 8. In verse 30, whom he predestined, these he called. He didn't predestine everyone. He calls efficaciously those whom he predestined in eternity past. But you know what? He hasn't sent you that list. So share the gospel with all. And leave it in his hands. Worthy hands to be sure. Uh, only he can make dead men and women and boys and girls alive. Now, turn with me, if you would, very quickly to Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 2. Verse 20, 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Notice gentleness. God uses means. if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, repentance is a gift from God. Uh, you and I know that faith is a gift from God too. We don't know who God gives it to, so we share with all. If you have repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, this was how you came. He gave it to you according to the sovereign good pleasure of His will. You should praise Him. Serve him because of that. Second Peter, uh, chapter uh, one, uh, in verse three, seeing that his divine power, his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, his divine power gives to us the gift of faith and repentance. Open our eyes to see 
our overwhelming need of a Savior and forgiveness. But leaving this divine realm that you and I uh, do not have access to, uh, for the human realm, where Paul is now dwelling, God uses men like Paul who desire to prosecute that message and to pray. It's certainly illustrated, is it not, in the Incarnation. Christ, the God-man, one person, two natures, leaves his heavenly environment to do what? To share the gospel. Uh, beautiful illustration of this. The power of the compassion of our Savior. Luke chapter 19, verses 41-42. When he approached the city, he saw it and wept over it. That's compassion. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Christ's prayer, the window opens and then it closes just as tragically. Now they've been hidden from you. You and I don't operate in that realm. Jesus does because he's not only man, but he's also God. You and I operate in the human realm. We can share the gospel. We can also warn men and women to be very careful because they are trafficking in eternity. Uh, Jesus knew the gravity and pronounces judgment upon the city. You and I know that that judgment was fulfilled in 70 AD when uh, Titus and his Roman legions breached the city walls and tore the temple down stone by stone. Act of judgment. Prophetic foretold in Daniel chapter 9. Be forewarned, Christ is coming again and the door will close forever. Paul knew this gravity too, and it informs his compassion and his prayer. Uh, it is important for us to recognize that there are profound virtues at work when, or should be at work, of course, when we share the gospel. We're not trafficking in bubble gum or tickets to the Big 12 championship. We're trafficking in eternity. It also informs Paul's witness. Look at the first part of uh, Romans uh, chapter 10 in uh, verse 2. I bear them witness. Paul is bearing witness to his countrymen. Paul knows that God is sovereign. He knows the doctrine of election but he does not know who the elect are, so he bears witness. He leaves the divine to the divine and picks up the human where God has commanded him to go to all of the world, baptizing and teaching. I might add, in our lawless age, warning men and women about the singular 
importance of the divine message, which, by the way, we don't traffic in. It's his message. God doesn't ask me to make it culturally relevant. We're to prosecute the message he gives to the church. He knows that God has commissioned him. He knows that he is to witness in act and in content. And what God does with it is his prerogative. But he's doing his part prayerfully and with great compassion. The transition from chapter 9 to 10 is from the divine realm to the human, where you and I live. The sovereign acts of God to the acts of men commissioned by God. Again, I remind you, uh, we refer to Matthew chapter 28 as containing the great commission, which are imperatives. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. Uh, you say, well, you know, Bowersox, that goes without saying. Uh, but it really doesn't, because there's an incipient danger uh, always within the church of hyper-Calvinism. God elects, and God doesn't use means. If he wants to save someone, he's going to save them however he wills to save them. Well, that's true, but God also uses means. That's what Paul is saying. He is a witness, prayerfully and compassionately sharing the gospel among his countrymen. Paul could have said, well, whoever the elect are, God will save them. I don't know who they are, so he's got to do it. No, that's hyper-Calvinism. That's being passive. God doesn't call us to be passive. Passivity is corrosive to the faith. We are to be witnesses. We're to learn from the example of the incarnate Savior. We're to learn from the example of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I understand witnessing is very difficult. It's always a challenge. But we're to be witnesses nonetheless with a sure confidence that God will save in his own way, in his own time, by his own power. Just because you share the gospel with someone, they ridicule you and mock you and reject you, that doesn't mean that two years hence they might change their mind by divine power and divine time. And so we don't have to worry about what God does with the message all we must be concerned about is prosecuting the message that he leaves us. Say, so, well, Phil, that goes without saying. No, it doesn't go without saying. You don't think the church isn't changing the message in the very age in which we live? I will tell you it is. Be very careful about changing the divine message because you're trafficking in eternity. And God will, of course, uh, demand an account. So we should not be passive. I'll tell you, at Grace Bible Church, we're not passive. Uh, we support missionaries in the continent of Africa. We share the gospel. Uh, I know that I'm not passive with my sons. And I know that you are not passive with your children because eternity is in the balance. So that's the man, the Apostle Paul. He's a witness he has great zeal, uh, he's compassionate, he prays, he shares the gospel. Let's turn to the message. There's a man, the Apostle Paul, men and women, you and me, 
Now the message. Verses 2-4. to four. And here we learn that God rejects men who trust in their own righteousness and not His. Uh, these verses inform uh, the basis of divine rejection of Israel that we will study in successive weeks. Uh, and Paul's remorse over Israel's spiritual condition. Let's look at that spiritual condition uh, because it's everywhere today. First, they have a zeal for God, but not a zeal according to knowledge. Again, notice the text. They have zeal. We all love zeal. Zeal's important. People respond to, to, to those who... Um, feel strongly about their message. But in this case, it's a zeal vacant, something that is incredibly important respecting the gospel, and that is the knowledge of God, which is an essential component of true faith. Uh, I always encounter people that Implicitly, will tell me, Phil, I don't need your Savior because I'm a very spiritual person. Um, this doesn't say anything about spirituality, does it? Zeal absent knowledge. Their zeal is commendable. Spirituality is commendable. But worthless if it's absent knowledge. And the knowledge is the record that we have of God in Scripture. Knowledge is a key component of true faith without which it is impossible to come to faith. Uh, many people in the Christian community today have a self-defined faith. That's why we should be witnesses. God doesn't give to you to self-define your faith. You don't make your own way. He tells you the way. And that way is Christ, of course. Uh, this text, I remind you this text, not me, this text sweeps away the emotional, the religious, the sincere, and the spiritual. Absent knowing what God has done and provided, everything else is of no account whatsoever. In other words, it's his record, not yours or mine. His, the divine, who tells us the way to salvation. And absent that, absent what God has done and what God has provided in the Savior, faith is of no account whatsoever. I would tell you that is a message people in our country need to hear. Uh, because everywhere churches are turning to the silliness that whatever makes you feel good. Uh, many churches hold the fact that everyone is going to heaven except maybe a few wretched creatures. Uh, it's just the church's job to tell them that we're all going there. Yeah, there are, there are people who genuinely in church today that believe that. Universalism. I'm not a universalist. I believe only those in Christ. Uh, in other words, with respect to the Apostle Paul, it's not only the act of witness, 
It's the content of the knowledge of God. But that's, that's what must be coupled to zeal. And uh, Paul gives us a personal testimony of this to make sure that we understand it. Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. Paul is in the court of man. He says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of the fathers, being zealous, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. What follows Paul's zeal? in his message to the court of man is the Damascus Road event in which Jesus Christ intervened in his life and saved him. So Paul tells us about his own zeal. Then he tells us about Christ who met him and who changed him and who commissioned him. No doubt uh, that Paul um, knew that that knowledge by the intervention of the Savior was the entire basis of his salvation. And that's what he's sharing in the court of men. You know, by the way, uh, uh, I, I know many of you, um, you did not have a Damascus Road experience like the Apostle Paul's. But on the other hand, he met you, and he changed you, and he gave you a new heart. That testimony of yours resonates with the people you encounter, because it's yours, and you are passionate about it, and you should share it. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, again, he's sharing his testimony. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. You know what follows? What follows is the gospel. That God set me apart and called me and revealed his son in me. His knowledge and his zeal was incredibly important, but it's also just as important that God in His grace revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to him. His need for a Savior and Redeemer. Another element of his personal testimony, Philippians chapter 3. I can't all things be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And those are incredibly powerful words. I think I've told you all the story. I was reading with a Hebrew rabbi, and I'd gotten to know him well enough to say, well, why don't you come to the Messiah? You know what your Old Testament teaches about him. He's come. He said, well, I couldn't do that. I said, well, how come? Because I'd have to scrap everything about my history. Yeah, that's right. Your traditions, your degrees, 
you're learning everything for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes from God on the basis of faith. On the basis of faith. And the American experience is, Phil, give me something to do. Give me some shoes to shine. Cars to wash. Not works, my friend. Faith in Christ is what he did. And what did he do? Gave his life a ransom for his people. And as wicked and as evil as we were, and we were that to be sure, he purchased his own. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the lost. His saving power alone can do just that. So that we must know it, no amount of emotional zealotry and appeals to spiritualism is sufficient. In our culture, we are said to say uh, more defined by feelings than we are the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What he did, how he did it, how he saves, and that his message is to be left intact. And absent, absent that, as great as zeal is and spirituality is and all the other things and virtues, uh, they mean nothing apart from the saving power of what Christ does to gather his own. Secondly, in verse 3, again, essential component of the divine message. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So they rejected God's provision for their own. My friend, that is dangerous ground to reject what he did for what you cannot ever do. Because fallen men under the vagaries of time cannot provide anything whatsoever that's acceptable to God. It's the importance of the incarnation, what God did in His Son. Uh, we, we know the concept of righteousness as the doctrine of justification. That we have no righteousness whatsoever that is acceptable to God. Therefore, He provides the righteousness of His Son that is perfect and objective, and He imputes it to the account of all who believe. Our righteousness fails to meet the perfect standard of a perfect God. Furthermore, it's temporal. Uh, I am not unmindful that human righteousness plays an incredibly important role in civilization. But not at the court of heaven. It is not accepted there. Only the righteousness of His Son is. I mean, you've heard a measure of my testimony. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. But God in His grace gives us the righteousness of His Son 
and we apprehend it solely by faith. And God charges that righteousness to our account. The failure of Israel and all religion for that matter is that they attempt to establish a righteousness entirely their own. And it will not avail before God. Um, most people are, most, relatively speaking, are good people. That counts in civil society. It does not count before heaven. Let's uh, establish this by turning to the Gospel of Luke. Again, I remind you that uh, these are not our words, words of our Savior. Luke chapter 16. Look at verse 15. Speaking to the Pharisees, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. At that point, our Savior has just swept all religion away. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, I, I, I remind you, Pharisees believed a great deal in being righteous before men. It doesn't count before God. If you're here this morning and uh, you're trying to be good uh, so that God would accept you, I'm simply telling you that you cannot be good enough and you will never get there. And therefore, your only, your only place to retreat, retreat is the goodness of Christ who lived an entirely perfect life and who charges that to the accounts of all men and women who believe in him by faith, by faith. Look at Luke chapter 18. It's a parable. Verse 9. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. He's, he's real close to the temple. And then a tax gatherer. The Jews hated the tax gatherers. Well, perhaps more than Jews, but... Um, this guy, he was standing far off because he knew he was unworthy. He was standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I love the definite article there. The sinner. It's as if he is saying, I'm the worst of the worst among the entire universe. I am the quintessential perfect sinner. And God, be merciful to me because it can come from no other venue. And that's where God traffics. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the lost. Verse 14 our Lord's commentary. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Paul's sweeping religion away. 
in many cases, he's sweeping away certain aspects of the Christian faith. Uh, I would remind you that in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, priests, human priests, assign works of penance for post-baptismal sins as if we can do works of penance to gain favor for God. I'm not against works. But when it comes to the doctrine of justification, it's only the work of Christ. And when He saves, He saves forever. When He wins, He loses none that the Father gave to Him. It's the righteousness of God alone that's acceptable for the divine court and only God the Son possesses what we need and is acceptable before God. And the means to apprehend us by faith alone. I love that phrase about the tax collector. This man went away justified. The sinner went away justified. Encounter people all the time that say, Phil, if you only knew how bad I was. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, if you only knew how bad I was. The point is, it's justification is an act of mercy of God, provision of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul cements this reality in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice the phrase, everyone who believes. Not everyone who believes and shines shoes and supports this cause and that cause and belongs to this party. No, everyone who believes. And then there is a period. By faith alone, we're justified. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the climax of the message. He ends any conception whatsoever of righteousness through law works. I would remind you that in both Testaments, righteousness was in Him. He is the sole portal by which we gain access to God. And His righteousness is available to all who believe in Him and what He did. His message. This church is a witness. It's His message. Paul was a, miss, was a witness. He is sharing God's message. It's never earned or deserved. He alone makes us right before God. And when one parades self-righteousness before the divine provision of the Son, there is and will always be eternal failure. It's the essence of the gospel. The righteous Christ alone, apprehended by faith. It's the biblical conception of the spiritual condition that all men are fallen in need of a Redeemer. God has provided it. But it is His way, His provision, in light of their condition. You and I should have compassion. And think about it. Men and women on a road to everlasting ruin for which there is no return, no recovery whatsoever. We should, like the Apostle Paul, pray, God act. You encounter someone Maybe the time is not right. I really can't tell you that. But you should pray. Maybe that God would open the door. Maybe that God would in some way bring about a natural introduction about Him in whom you have believed. 
but certainly we need to pray uh, because men are in a terrible way and that God acts to deliver by a Savior and by using His agents in the church. Again, we begin with the reality that God uses means. We conclude with the reality that we should be useful, prosecute those means. Israel failed in that. They had a different way. They lost. Paul did not. God saved him. We must not fail either. Prosecuting his message in the court of man with a sure confidence. If God wills to save, he will. If he doesn't, it falls to him. His time, his way. But we are the means that God has appointed in the Great Commission to be useful to prosecute his message, his way. And may God be gracious to us in just that. Well, this morning, as you uh, know, it's an uh, occasion to uh, partake of the great sacrament of the church, the Lord's table. It's a picture of what Christ did. Uh, it is a sign. The sign is important. You will partake of the sign. But of, of greater importance is what is signified by the sign. And that we apprehend by faith. Uh, nothing at all happens in simply the partaking of the sign. It's what the sign signifies. Uh, the bread signifies that Christ's body was broken, tortured, if you will, for the remission of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is my body which is for you. For us in what way? That we would apprehend the reality of what he did and hold him near in our journey to heaven. To feed on him, not corporally, but spiritually, in apprehending all of the benefits of the new covenant that accrue to us by faith. And to hold it in the highest of esteem, spiritual food, to spiritually nourish us in this great journey of life to meet God in eternity. So pass the bread. I ask you to hold it um, until we're all served because we're going to eat together as a sign that this church is one in our theology that God saves through His Son and forgives by His Son and that we every day need to be reminded of that great message. Uh, after which time all are served, I will pray and we will do just that. Express our unity. Eat together. Let's prepare our hearts for the bread. Our Father, we are thankful for our Savior, for the bread that came down from heaven, that we may eat, that we may remember our Savior in His words. Take, eat. For as often as you eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Come quickly, Lord. But if it pleases Thee to tarry, we're thankful for the nourishment that comes from knowing our Savior and what He did for us in sovereign grace and power. And bless us as we partake to be nourished spiritually. For the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.
as I pass the cup. I remind you that in the center of the cup there is wine, in the periphery there's grape juice that people may partake in the freedom of their own uh, conscience. Nonetheless, hold the cup until which time we're all served and then we will take, we will drink together, celebrating our unity in the knowledge of Christ our Redeemer. Our Father, we're grateful for the blood of our Redeemer, that it was acceptable in thy sight to ransom us, that we might escape eternal judgment and ruin, uh, for which we are profoundly grateful. As we partake, we acknowledge that we um, are saved by his shed blood, and that we celebrate that salvation in the cup of the new covenant. And may it be a blessing to us and nourish us spiritually that we might all the more live for him and his kingdom, his glory, whose name we pray, amen.